Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Garrett Boyum, joined with Robert Fry. Today we have on a special guest for you. His name is Ethan Moore, and he's an analyst for the Cal Poly University baseball team, a D1 baseball team. And in this podcast, we talk about how you can use technology on a budget and with that technology, you can understand processes and metrics to best understand an individual's skill set, as well as using video to best understand a player's movement. I hope you guys enjoy our conversation with Ethan Moore. So, Ethan, thanks for coming on. Um, just to begin, like, just tell us a basic background of yourself, basic background of kind of what you do. Well, Robert and Garrett, thank you for having me on. So I am a an amateur uh, baseball analyst. I am kind of uh, involved in a lot of aspects of baseball research. That's kind of my my thing. I am a third-year student at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in San Luis Obispo, California, studying um, statistics and data science. And I am the director of baseball analytics for our um, D1 baseball team in the Big West. And, um, and then aside from that, I like to do a lot of research in the public sphere with uh, more major league baseball type data. And, um, and yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Awesome. So yeah, to begin, let's let's talk about kind of at Cal, Cal Poly. What what exactly like what's your day to day like? Um, kind of you know what what kind of technology is used there and how how it can be utilized at the collegiate level. Yeah, great question. So um, we have a couple of technologies that we rely pretty heavily on. Um, the first is Rapsodo. We've had that for two seasons. And um, this season was our first year with a TrackMan unit. So um, we were just starting to get uh, you know, a, a solid sample size worth of data from TrackMan before the season ended this year. So that's something exciting to build upon. Um, and then a lot of our other technology is not necessarily data related, but we subscribe to a service called Synergy which is useful for advanced scouting, which is something that um, is very helpful in college because the college data is obviously not as accessible as it is in the major leagues, as you know, Robert. So, um, so Synergy is very helpful. That's, um, that gives us stats and video for our opponents that we're going to be playing. So that's, I'd say, what we lean on the most. And then we also use a software called BATS that allows us to... Um, get our video to our coaches and players um, right after the game ends so that they can um, get immediate feedback on their mechanics on, you know, and how the game went. So that's kind of the technology that we use. Um, two years ago, it was the analytics department was me and three other managers. And this year we expanded the staff um, to about 10 managers I believe it was nine or 10 um, total managers. And we were kind of just, just getting into our groove before everything uh, halted to a stop. So um, don't really have a lot to report there, but 
but yeah, on the day to day, we're just working with coaches to figure out what they are interested in um, getting reports on, getting objective feedback on. Um, a lot of it is scouting. Some of it's player development. Some of it is game strategy. And, um, and it's just kind of a, a fun mix. So that's, I, I hope that answers your questions. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that that's came up to me a couple of times recently is talking with other coaches is, you know, there's these kind of like volunteer assistant coaches that reach out to me and say, Hey, how would you go about kind of building out a staff or how would you go about, you know, continuing to add more people considering, you know, most baseball programs have, you know, a uh, head coach and I want to say two um, full-time assistants, but uh, you know, that, that third, that third one is usually a volunteer, you know, no pay just from camps, but most of the time, you know, they're usually, dealing with, you know, the players in terms of, you know, developing mechanics, um, developing, you know, kind of, uh, those, you know, motions, uh, so on and so forth, but kind of talk about why having a staff, a kind of analytic staff of say undergraduate students or graduate students is so impactful to a baseball program, especially at the college level. Yeah, I think the simple answer to that is just that coaches are busy, right? I mean, there aren't that many coaches and they have a lot of things to do. So um, a big part of what coaches do day to day is it does not involve um, analytics and looking at numbers, trying to find new trends, um, you know, trying to identify ways to improve, you know, how they do things just because there really aren't enough hours in the day. So um, I think that it's very, the opportunity for, um, additional help is definitely there for, um, for colleges, college baseball teams, especially those that have, um, a little bit of money to, you know, make investments in technology. I think the Cal Poly was very, um, the Cal Poly program was very fortunate to, you know, have the ability to make, uh, investments in some of these cool, um, data collection technologies and um and you know without the students there a lot of those insights would probably be left um unexplored and, and unfound so um i think that that's the value of of having undergraduate students or just um anyone helping look at that data is just that if those people weren't there it probably wouldn't get done um just because there's not enough hours in the day Awesome. Yeah. Cause, um, there's something that also is like, you know, with kind of technology now, again, like stuff like TrackMan or even a flight scope may be too rich for, you know, the vast majority of collegiate programs. Um, but you know, you can still get a Rapsodo at a reasonable price. Um, especially something like blast, um, or diamond kinetics are also something that's kind of along those lines as well as something it's, pretty cheap or um, pretty affordable for most programs. But um, kind of building off of that, it's, you know, what we're kind of asking is, you know, how how can, you know, coaches and these um, analysts like you, like me, and so many other people um, be able to bridge that kind of uh, synergy, if you will, with those coaching staffs and um, just – 
you know, being able to communicate a message, I think is very huge. So, you know, kind of talk me through like, what what's a process through communicating a message through coaches or what's a process to communicating a message through even players? Yeah. I mean, in, in the, um, you know, a lot of my coursework having to do with statistics and, um, in the professional world of statistics, a big recurring theme is how do we communicate statistical mathematical concepts to people who are not statistically or mathematically oriented, right? So that's very important. Whether you're in baseball, whether you're in um, finance, public health, education, it, and in any time that you're using um, numbers to find, you know, interesting new insights, you're going to have to communicate those insights to people who don't have the same um, educational specialty as you do. So um, being with the Cal Poly baseball team has really been a great um, experience for me to just practice. I think that it's a skill that, that comes with practice. I, um, you know, I'm not aware of that many resources out there where, um, people can learn this skill, communicating advanced, um, statistical concepts to people who aren't, um, statistically inclined, like that textbook doesn't exist or, or I haven't encountered it. So, um, I think a lot of it is practicing. So if, you are a student who is working for a team or has the ability to work for a team. Um, this is just a, a great practice ground, right? So it's like, I get this data. I look for something. I find something, say it's, you know, a pitcher on our team. Uh, he has, you know, he has high, super high spin rate on one of his pitches, but the spin direction is just really awful. And basically he's not getting, the most out of this pitch that he can, right? That's just kind of a, a sample, um, something that might happen at a college program. So I have to then explain that to a coach who may have never heard of um, spin rate, or more likely they haven't heard of spin direction, or um, are just kind of not super familiar with uh, Rapsodo data in general, that kind of thing. So um, in that situation, you just kind of have to, to try and try again. So my freshman year, or actually, no, it was my sophomore year when I, when we first got the Rapsodo, um, you know, it was my job to explain what was happening on the Rapsodo dashboard to the pitching coach and the pitchers. And, um, I, I guarantee that I was not, not everything that I said was accurate back then. You know, I was, I was still learning. Um, and everyone kind of looks to you as, as the, the expert or whatever, but it's like, I've just read a couple, you know, driveline blog posts. Like, I don't really know exactly what I'm talking about, but, um, but the more you practice, the better you get at it. I'm still not a pro. I mean, that's, that's something that I, I think I can always improve at, but, um, but, but being able to do that is so important. I think, um, from a, a kind of a common sentiment that I hear from coaches and players, if they're anti-analytics is just like, you know, it, it, you can tell that their complaints stem from the fact that the analysts aren't speaking the players and coaches language, right? So they they might be kind of above their heads, making the, the players and coaches feel dumb, right? Which players and coaches aren't dumb. They just haven't studied the same things that the analysts have studied. So someone has to be able to bridge that gap. Some coaches lately have been, you know, taking it upon themselves to learn about statistics and empirical methods um, so that they can be the ones to bridge the gap. But if you're an analyst, you you can't bank on that being the case. You have to also be um, able and, and willing to communicate 
um, and kind of speak the language of the players and of the coaches. So um, I think that's another big reason why um, working for for and with a um, college baseball team is good experience because if you're around a baseball team, you're going to learn the baseball language, right? And that'll help you communicate um, so that you guys are speaking the same language. So um, I think that that's, that's a really important thing. And, and, you know, you can be the smartest guy in the world, but if the coaches don't understand what you're saying, or if you can't kind of sell it, you know, if you can't, um, if you can't make a convincing argument that what you found is actually correct and useful, then it really doesn't matter at all. Right. It's not going to get implemented. So, um, so communications is, is huge and might even be more important than the actual analysis that you're doing in some cases, in my opinion. So Ethan, could you give me an example of a statistical idea that you've, uh, had to either explain, um, to a coach or, or just if you were to do a hypothetical, how would you explain a statistical concept and maybe to help out that question a little bit, um, what statistical concept, uh, do you think is important for coaches and even players, uh, to actually be able to understand? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I think that the one that comes to mind is, is kind of a, it's, it's the opposite of a success story, but I think it's, it's useful. So, um, for me, something that I think is very important in all of statistics, but also, um, especially in like performance analytics and in baseball is the idea of like a results based metric versus like a process based metric, right? So, almost everything that's been recorded, um, in baseball for, you know, up until maybe the the eighties or nineties, that was a results based metric. That was how many home runs did he hit? How many singles did he hit? What was his ERA? All of those things are the result of what happened on the field. Recently process based metrics have kind of started to come out and that those examples of process based metrics are, um, more like, you know, exit velocity, spin rate, um, you know, spin efficiency on pitches. There's a lot more uh, for pitching than there are for hitting right now. Um, but launch angle, you can consider there are things that aren't they're They're uh, a little bit more pure, right? So I guess pitch velocity is also uh, more of a process metric because just measuring, you're measuring something that is happening and it's not re- related to other things, right? So, um, so in general, the reason that this is important is that in general, a process-based metric is going to be more predictive of future success or, you know, make it easier for you to understand what's happening right now than a results-based metric. Just because there's less variance in a process-based metric like, like pitch velocity, right? You just watch a guy throw three fastballs and you're like, okay, I understand how, how hard this guy throws, right? Like that's, that's quick and easy. You understand. But if you're evaluating players with results-based metrics, like, okay, what's his batting average? How many home runs did he hit? What's his slugging percentage? Those things take a long time to figure out, right? You got to like scouts spend plenty of, you know, games having to watch the same player play multiple games, take probably dozens of at bats to get, you know, a representative sample of what they think um, this player can be because they're looking at in a lot of the, a lot of cases, all they have to look at are results-based stats. So anyway, um, I'll, I'll bring this back so, to baseball. 
So what you were saying, though, just to quickly clarify, you're saying that when it comes to our traditional stats, um, like batting average, slugging percentage, etc., it takes a lot longer for those numbers to stabilize to be a good representation of what the player's ability is. Yes, that that is exactly right. Um, awesome. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. So a lot of the times in college baseball, like when I showed up, um, you know, the, the, when you hear the players talking, you hear the coaches talking a lot of their opinions on who's the best player on the team, right? Who should we have hitting in the three hole, that kind of thing. A lot of that, a lot of those opinions, when I showed up at, at my program appeared to me to be based on, okay, who has the highest batting average, right? Who maybe who has the, um, who has the most pop in BP or something like that, right? That's, that's kind of, um, there, those are those are results. So once we got our TrackMan unit, well, our Rapsodo, and then our TrackMan unit, the reason the TrackMan data is so uh, helpful is that a lot of those um, metrics stabilize very quickly and they're they're process based. So we don't really even need to know what happened in the the plate appearance a lot of the times to figure out a lot of information about the pitcher and the hitter. So um, so for example, we had a guy. Um, this year who was just consistently stinging the ball. Like he was hitting the ball over a hundred miles an hour um, in exit velocity, like pretty often, um, way more often than, than his batting average or his other, you know, traditional stats would have indicated. And, you know, that's, that's a valuable piece of information. So that's um, potentially a better uh, indication of, of his potential than, you know, just a guy who, you know, hits 200 off the bench every year. Um, so the, the time where I tried to, you know, tell this to coaches, I was basically saying, I was trying to explain the concept of expected metrics, right? So we're all, I think a lot of us are familiar with the concept of like X WOBA, right? Which is, it's not the actual WOBA that the player has, but it's the WOBA that we would expect the player to have based on his process-based metrics like exit velocity, launch angle, spray angle, um, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so the, the coach that I was um, trying to explain this to when I was saying, okay, well, we have TrackMan, we have all this data, we can start to make expected metrics, right? So this is mm-hmm. WOBA, which is a, a results-based uh, metric we could create X WOBA, which is more a function of, of process-based metrics. Um, so when I'm starting to explain that, these coaches, you know, this isn't their world. They have not, um, they're not familiar with the concept of an expected stat. Um, that, you know, for all I know, they may, may not even be um, familiar with the concept of like an expected value, which is just kind of a, um, a thing you learn pretty early on in statistics. But um but anyway, the, my, my fault was that I was um, trying to explain, you know, expected uh, WOBA before I even, you know, was talking about the basics like expected value. So, you know, I kind of just came into the office and was like, OK, well, you know, based on exit velocity and launch angle and based on a swing, we can assign a value to, you know, how valuable that that contact was. And for me, that's like awesome. Right. I'm like, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened. We have TrackMan now. We can, you know, every time a guy puts a bat on the ball, we can put a value on that. Like, how good was that contact? Um, 
And, and the coach was just like, yeah, no, we don't need that. Which, you know, to be fair in the short term, it's definitely not, not a need. Um, but I did a very bad job of, you know, making the convincing argument that this potentially is a, a helpful tool that we can use to evaluate our own players and to evaluate other players. Um, and I think that that's something in the analytics community where we're like, Oh, you know, when you go to someone's baseball savant page, you might go straight to the ex-woba, right? Like that's, that's pretty close to like as good of a, an indication of contact of uh, talent, excuse me, as we're going to get for a player. Um, but I, I, you know, wasn't communicating very well um, and didn't get my point across and, you know, completely failed at, at trying to explain the value of, of an expected stat that's process-based instead of um, results-based. So anyway. Do you want to kind of explain that? Like what the value, what, one, what an expected stat is, and then two, what is the value of, uh, of using an expected stat, especially when, um, like when expected numbers don't actually match up with the actual numbers, like how do we reconcile those differences? What has um, your statistical um, studies um, helped you understand uh, when there's uh, that difference? Yeah. So um, in general, an expected stat is um, it's just a function. So you put in a bunch of statistics, usually they're TrackMan or StatCast statistics, and you put it into this function, which um, a lot of the times is is uh, like statistical model. It could be linear regression. It could be um, it could be a random forest, whatever. It's it's just um, it's just a, a model, but you can think of it like a function. There's an input and an output, and what you're trying to do is um, is predict the value of the result stat. So, for example, if we wanted to predict a player's um, batting average, we could put in all of his stats uh, and then do that for every player, right? And then you would come out with a function or a predictive model that says, okay, for each of these players, based on the information that you gave us, that you gave this model, this is what we would expect um, each player's batting average to be. And so the advantage of doing that is that that method, it strips out a lot of the randomness, right? So if you, you know, if you're watching a baseball game for 20 minutes, you're going to understand that there's a lot of factors that go into whether a player, whether, whether a, a player's hit in play is a hit or an error, right? Or whether it's a hit or an out. So if a guy, you know, if a guy has singles to straight up the middle, it's like, okay, that's, that's usually a single. But now what if there's a fielder there in a shift? right? That's an easy ground out. So the, the, in both cases, the player hit the exact same ball, but in one case, he got a single up the middle. And in another case, he got an out. So using batting average there, there's a lot of randomness, right? It's, it's where the players, uh, where the defensive players position. Um, there's, there's a lot, you know, did, do the defensive players make an error instead of, you know, instead of, hit there's there's a lot of factors that influence whether a ball in play is going to be a hit um, or not so you know going with this uh, batting average example we could then make a predictive model that says okay um what, what what what's the expected batting average on hits up the middle right and so it would take all those similar hits 
up the middle from the entire history of, you know, that we have data of. So let's say all 2019 and it would say, okay, this hit up the middle. How many times was that a hit and how many times was that an out? So say that, you know, a single, that, that hit up the middle about half the time it's a hit and about half the time it's not. So every time going forward, say it's, you know, say it's 2020, we're back to playing baseball. If a guy, if a guy hits that ground ball up the middle, regardless of what happens, that the analysts are going to say, okay, that was worth 0.5 hits. You know, that the expected batting average on that was 500, which is very good. Obviously you want about, you want an expected batting average of 500, but that's kind of what an expected metric does is it strips out the variance and it says on average, how, you know, what is the batting average of this hit? So if we wanted to do slugging percentage, which is something that I, um, that's a project that I did for college, um, data from using 2018 data. And so I was trying to predict slugging percentage, right? So now, in, once we were playing in 2019, every time one of our guys had a hit, I was able to say, okay, on average, that hit has a slugging percentage of whatever it was, right? So if it was a deep, deep fly out that a guy caught, you know, robbed him of a homer, we'd say, okay, that's an out, right? The result of that is an out, but the process says that that hit had an expected slugging percentage of, you know, 3,500, right? Like most of the time that's a homer. Um, sometimes it's not, we'll say, okay, that's, that's an expected value or expected slugging percentage of, of 3,500. That's just kind of, um, an example there. But, um, yeah, to, to get at the second part of your question, what do you do when the expected value and the actual value don't match up? Right. Is that, that's what you were asking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, what we have to understand and what I think I've learned, um, through my statistical, um, training is that models aren't perfect, right? There's, there's a famous quote that, that goes around that's, um, no model is perfect, but some models are useful. Mm -hmm. Um, and when you're calculating expected values or expected, um, statistics, if you're looking to turn a results-based stat into a process-based stat by calculating the expected stat, um, that, that is using a model that's using a function and that model is not going to be able to, um, incorporate every single aspect of reality that we want to control for, right? So the biggest example here is the issue with XWOBA that I think is known kind of within the analytics community that may not be um, known by the casual fan, but um, XWOBA does not, or at least uh, until recently, did not account for the speed of the player. So um, you're talking uh, running speed or yes. sprint speed. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Running speed, like, like base running speed. Um, so what would happen is a guy like, say a guy like, um, you know, D Gordon would have, you know, he'd have a hit and the model would say, okay, on average that hit, um, you know, is going to create a WOBA of say it's a ground ball, say that's a WOBA of 100, right? That's bad. Um, but for D Gordon, he's not the average base runner, right? He's fast. So for him, his, you know, he should have been credited with a higher WOBA on that ground ball because he has a greater chance of, of lugging it out. So there's kind of a systematic bias in this ex-WOBA stat that 
fast players have lower ex-wobas than they should. And slow players, like think Albert Pujols, Miguel Cabrera, they have higher ex-woba values than they should because they're, le- you know, those, those older players are less likely to, um, to create offensive value with the same hits because of their base running speed. So, um, I think a lot of the, so, so in that regard, what you're saying is that, and could we extrapolate this to say that if, if a person like D Gordon gets on, um, his hit, like what might only be a single for Albert Pujols could be a double, uh, for him and, and, or on once he's on base, his ability to, get extra bases and or go first to home or first to third is much greater um, than somebody like Miguel Cabrera or Albert Pools. Is that what you're saying? Or is it just strictly in in terms of the hit outcome um, when it comes to running speed? Yeah, so it's it's definitely um, more the first part of what you said than the than the second part. So okay. um, what WOBA Woba, it's like um, it's like batting average in that it doesn't account um, for base running once mm-hmm. the is over, right? Gotcha. So, um, so it it does not account for um, the you know the base stealing speed or the base stealing prowess of D Gordon versus Albert Pujols, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's just not what the metric is is intended to do. But it mm-hmm. it's absolutely a factor where say there's a single or I shouldn't say single, but say there's, there's a, you know, soft line drive into the gap for D Gordon that the expected WOBA of that is definitely higher or should definitely be higher because Mm -hmm. he has a much greater chance of ending up on second base, you know, after legging out a double there than Albert Pujols, who that's going to be a single every single time. Right. So that Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. that's a single every time. Whereas D Gordon, maybe it's a single half the time and a double half the time, but the mm-hmm. metric itself, again, I, I think that they may have fixed this, um, at MLB advanced media. I'm not sure, but at least, um, previously that metric did not account for the speed of basically the batter runner. So the speed of the batter as he's running the bases, but before the play ends, um, turning, like you said, turning singles into doubles turning ground outs into singles, that kind of thing. Um, so kind of where that bias existed. So I think that when the expected value doesn't match up with the actual value, um, I think we kind of just have to chalk that up to, you know, we're not accounting for all of the factors that we want to in this predictive model that we're using to create the expected metric. Um, and, you know, presumably with more data, um, we would be able to kind of reduce that bias. But, you know, at the time, I don't think that StatCast had the data that they needed for like base running speed, like time from home to first, that kind of thing. Um, Or if they did, they chose not to um, put it in the model for whatever reason. So if that was added to the model, that bias should go away. Um, And and just again, like I said, no model is ever going to be perfect. So I think that it's just kind of like, you have to understand where that bias is coming from and try to account for it, but you may not be able to fix it. You may just have to kind of work around it. And that's too where you talking about sprint speed. I always wanted to know, and I think I asked Darren uh, Warren, I believe said his last name, uh, the guy who puts together a lot of the stat cast, what's available. Yeah. Uh, Darren, Darren Wellman. Is that what you said? Wellman. 
Yep. Willman, yes. Um, I asked him, like, hey, could we get we could we get times from home to second, home to third? Mm. And like if a guy has a in the park home run, which like these are really important, at least to me, at one as a coach, baseball coach, it's a better gauge of actual uh speed versus a 60 time where somebody's running in a straight line. It's like yeah. baseball players don't hardly ever run in a straight line. Um for that distance. And so once if you can actually see how quickly a guy gets around the bases, what you may find is guys who 60 times are really high, they actually might be a little bit slower on the bases than other guys just simply in terms of like how efficiently they are able to run a curved linear route um, versus uh, just a straight linear route. And then secondarily, um, from an SNC standpoint, from an energy systems training, um, focus, it becomes important to know like, Hey, the, this is um, the amount of time it takes a play to elapse and how long a guy may need to be able to run full speed for. Um, one thing yeah. that I saw a lot when I was at the junior college level, not a lot, but frequently enough is that we would have guys on first base and they would be going, uh, first to home. And they were safe at third. And I could tell as soon after the, as they're getting up to third base and they're starting to go home, like they're slowing down and it's because they're tired. They're not used to having to run for that long of a time at full speed at max, um, max intent. And, and so as a, um, strength and conditioning coach, that's something that we can address and improve on for our athletes. Um, because that last 90 feet is the most important at that point. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the, you know, them getting there. It was that, that last 90 feet. And, and from that standpoint, I think it's important, important for coaches to understand that you can actually condition your players to be able to, um, be at full strength or full capacity, um, intensity, um, for that last critical 90 feet where, where it really matters. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I that data definitely exists. Like that's definitely something that that teams and MLB Advanced Media has access to. And and I agree with you. I would love if that was made public. I think that would be great. I think and you know bringing it back a little bit, speed is is another one of those um, process metrics, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. you can you you see a guy run, you know, two or three times at max speed, and you're like, that's his speed, right? And you can put that into a model, and it, it's going to be very predictive of his speed going forward, right? Assuming everything's mm-hmm. and he's not injured or whatever, but, um, but yeah, that, that information would be great. And I think that that's a great idea for how you could use it. And there's probably plenty of other really awesome uses of that data. So hopefully we see that at some point publicly. Yeah, absolutely. Cause you know, a lot of, as Garrett was mentioning that, like a lot of this stuff is kind of popping into my head where it's like, okay, would you, for in terms of base running, would you rather have a guy that can bust it first to third pretty quickly, um, and then just you know what, leave him at third, you know, let him uh, run on another ninety feet for the next bat or whenever it comes next, or would you rather have a guy that you know slows down, doesn't go full speed from first to third, but then you know busts it out the remaining ninety feet, you know, then you can kind of ask those questions and you can see you know, slowing down because yeah, like, like Garrett said, most guys don't run. They hardly will run, uh, you know, not necessarily 180 feet because again, it's not linear. So 
they'll do kind of a wide turnaround. So they might be running, you know, 200, 210 feet, um, something along those lines. But um, you can kind of ask those questions and say, okay, uh, you know, what's, what's his max speed and how long can someone keep their max speed without mm-hmm. a, you know, big drop in that max speed? Well, and then too, Robert, on that note, it becomes that's a trainable trainable quality. Um, just think track when they run the 400 meter. Um, I don't know what that's equivalent in feet, but quite simply, we can train uh, people to be able to run at their max speed for an extended period of time. And that's that's why it's important to look at, say, for example, Byron Buxton and to have an understanding of how long it took him to go from home to home to home. Um, and because there, there are specific time windows uh, in terms of uh, which energy system is dominant. Um, so like which, which energy system is dominant. And so we can train those energy systems. And I just think it's important to have data so that you can make the case for training these different types of qualities. And then you can also measure it as well. Um, and, and, and so for me, it's just simply that we need to train this more. Cause I think this is something that a lot of coaches have forgotten and, and, and to, uh, specifically strength and conditioning coaches. Yeah. Yeah. No. And th- another thing that can pop up is from an analyst perspective, uh, you know, guys like Ethan, and I can ask the questions. Okay. When a ball is hitting the gap, how often does a runner on first score? And you can ask mm-hmm. those questions and be able to analyze and be able to say, okay, X percent of this time, a ball in the gap scores this runner on first. Because again, the biggest thing for coaches, and I mean, it's pretty much for any profession is time. They don't have time to be able to work on all these different things. They need to, we as analysts need to help them understand, okay, how can we best utilize our time in, an, in a training environment and say, okay, well, if a ball gets in a gap and you're scoring, you know, a runner's scoring 10% of the time, should we really train for that uh, as frequently as we should? Or should we train for something else and understand that, okay, maybe the next hit will just drive them in on the next, uh, next at bat. Well, and, and you bring up a good question that I wanted to ask both of you guys. Um, but first to say that um, I think, too, it's important to have a baseline number. So let's say, um, Robert, like in the example that you used, they score 10% of the time. And then the question becomes, if we actually train um, and improve their energy system, their ability to use their creatine phosphate um energy system, which is the primary one that, uh, most, most, most baseball players use. If we improve that system as well as the glycolytic system, um, and their ability to use uh, lactic acid, um, as an energy source, then, then would we see that number go from 10% to say 12 or 15 or whatever, like, and that, that, that to me is where like you guys are really super, really important is that you guys can provide us data to, to show whether or not our interventions are working. Um, and then lastly, to kind of transition back to you guys is how do we utilize the, the analytics, um, the statistics for decision-making, um, especially when let's say, for example, like we were talking about before the statistics don't necessarily, or, I guess to say, like, based upon the limitations of statistics, how do we properly use 
um, analytics in the decision-making process yeah. or for decision-making? Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting question. I think that, um, that kind of gets to the, the heart of, um, probably what, you know, the, the sabermetric revolution, right. And how analysts were able to, uh, prove that, that their work provides value for mm-hmm. teams. Um, yeah, there, there just has to kind of be a, a base understanding from all people involved, the analysts, the decision makers, um, and the people who execute the policies based on, um, you know, the, the results of a statistical analysis that, you know, this, the result may not be, um, perfect, but, you know, it's kind of just doing, um, the, the uh, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to phrase this. Um, the course of action that a statistical analysis might be, um, suggesting based on data, it's, it's not just a robot spitting out a number or spitting out, you know, we should do this. There's, there's that human, um, element of humans having to be the ones who are looking at the data and analyzing it and, um, you know, synthesizing all this information with, um, you know, okay, so what should the actual decision, um, what would, you know, what would we recommend the decision be? Um, and I think that everyone in the decision-making process just has to kind of understand that there are limitations, but it's a lot better than, um, you know, shooting in the dark or mm-hmm. just basically guessing what we should do or going off of gut feeling. Um, cause you know, over, over lots of, lots of tries, the, the stats are going to be kind of the more reliable method to use for decision-making in a lot of cases, um, going forward. But I think you, you make a good point. There's a lot more going on than just, you know, give the computer input and it gives you output and tells you what to do. Right. Yeah. And yeah, building off that, you know, most of the time that, that input is essentially created by humans. Um, yeah. whether it be, um, you know, if you're say analyzing track man data, or if you're, you know, training a model, that model is trained by uh, someone who, you know, decided what model to use. So that is trained by a human. Um, the track man data trained by, or the tra- all that, all those data points are from human beings. So there's, there's that element to it. And then two, building off what Ethan said, yeah, I think we can, we can definitely create something based on, you know, that, that data that we have, um, we can, like we talked about, uh, many times before Garrett, you know, in terms of, you know, building a kind of a training environment that's representative of, you know, a mm-hmm. game environment where, you know, instead of say having guys, you know, just take regular batting practice. Well, let's figure out how often does player X, bat with guys on base. All right. Well, you know what, if you have, let's say you have 12, 12 swings and 25% of the time guys are on base. All right. Four of those swings, there's going to be guys on base. So that way you can create an environment that is representative to your actual game like state. Now, again, those numbers could shift and vary, but you can still create that baseline like you mentioned. And then over time, you know what, that'll improve. And then, you know, just, it's a thing that's, you know, dynamically changing, just like technology is in the baseball realm. It's just dynamically changing and, you know, just got to be able to adapt. And that's, again, another thing we've talked about a lot is, you know, being able to be adaptable in so many different environments. 
Yeah, I would, I'd like to just say that I'm a huge advocate of um, of game-like practice. I think that that's something that's very important and, and representative practice like you're talking about. Um, I think that there's, at least this is my opinion, and, and I definitely uh, am willing to be wrong about this, but it seems like there's a lot of emphasis on um, like situational hitting um, or situational mm-hmm. pitching, um, especially at the college level from what I've seen and heard um, in practice that um, you know, is kind of disproportionate where there's uh, a lot of practice being done for situations that really don't happen all that often. Um, mm-hmm. on the other side of things, there's, um, situations that happen a lot that are not, um, you know, not proportionally represented in practice, um, that I think that's kind of an inefficiency. So, um, Robert, I, I totally agree with, with everything you're saying there. Yeah. And building off what you said too, it's, you know, practicing a certain difference may, may be a whole different thing in different conferences. So like something like bunt defense, you know, it may happen more frequently, say in the big West, but then in the big 12, it rarely happens. So being able to understand, you know, who your opponent is, who you're playing and being able to understand, okay, well, what's, what's their typical, you know, dynamic environment. Should we, should we really practice, you know, bunt defense when we're playing a big 12 team that, you know, just likes to go for extra bases or should we be able to practice, you know, uh, defensive alignment or defensive, um, I guess, uh, defensive positioning when a ball's hitting the gap, things along those lines. Totally. Um, Robert, I want to at least uh, allow you to ask the one question that you had before, before I, I want to ask some things about uh, motor learning, but I want to, or at least uh, I think your video question might be uh, more apt first. Yeah. So the big thing right now, Ethan, and I'm sure you, you understand this being at Cal Poly is video has played such a huge role for college programs. And especially with, you know, synergy being as big as it is now, Um, but I just, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. How can say if someone doesn't have synergy or if, you know, someone wants to be able to create dynamic, dynamic videos and be able to have that maybe not as quickly as, you know, synergy may have it or using the bat software, but, you know, being able to have those videos to be able to develop players or understand um, kind of mechanics or, you know, things of that nature. Yeah. So um, we are very lucky to have synergy um, as a program, but also to be, um, you know, living in a time in, you know, the, the course of technology that technology like that is available um, so immediately. So, um, obviously coaches love having video. It's a big part of what they, um, do and a big, you know, strength of theirs generally that, um, that they're able to look at video and find, um, interesting things and, and, uh, I don't know, just, just be able to help the team, um, using video. So I think there's two major uses for video. There's getting video for your own team and getting video for your opponents. So if you don't have synergy, you should, or bats, you should still be able to capture um, your own team, your own players, your own games on video. Um, 
it might take a little bit of an investment in cameras that are, you know, a good enough quality for you to be able to watch back in, you know, in high definition or whatever you, um, kind of whatever your, your baseline is, whatever quality you want to be watching in. Um, so Cal Poly has, we invested in some, uh, cameras that were, they were nice, but you know, they weren't, they weren't Edgartronics. They weren't, um, weren't really breaking the bank. So I think that's something that teams can do. Um, I would recommend getting uh, a large SIM card, something like basically something that can hold, um, three to four hours of, of consecutive video all at once. Cause that's about how long, uh, games are going to be in the worst case. So you want to have all of that. Um, you can, I would recommend filming from multiple angles so you can get, you know, the batters open side righties and lefties. Um, and then we, this year we're able to set up a camera in center field, which was just a total game changer for our coaches. Um, we just kind of had a little, um, we taped a tripod to the outside of the, um, center field fence and just had the tripod peeking out, um, right above the top of the fence. And, um, and just before every game went and set the camera up and turned it on and having that video for the coaches was, uh, was just huge being able to, to watch a college game, um, especially one, you know, in the big West that we don't get many games televised very often. And if we do, they're from kind of behind home plate view, which isn't great. So to, to be able to watch our games as if they were, you know, on ESPN, um, that was really huge for us. And I think that's something that a lot of teams can do um, with a, a small investment. When it comes to scouting other teams, before we had Synergy and Bats, what I, I believe what the coaches did was just look for um, film on the individual players from an upcoming team on like YouTube or like Huddle or other um, similar websites that have amateur baseball scouting video the best players on other teams that you might be facing may have been drafted in the past, or at least, um, you know, were somewhat of prospects in high school that you might be able to find video for, um, just to kind of understand if it's a pitcher, maybe what pitches they throw about how fast, you know, what the shape of those pitches are can be huge. Um, and then for hitters, you know, you could look at, at, um, whatever video is available and just try to find a flaw, um, in the mechanics that you might be able to exploit. And, and all of that would be free if you're just using um, internet access. So I think things can be done. Um, it's not like you have to have um, synergy and bats to be able to do any type of video scouting of your own team or other teams. Obviously those programs make it easier. And if you uh, have the resources, then I would definitely recommend them. But um, if you don't have the resources, then, then I would just say um, there's a lot of, a lot of resources out there that are um, free or, or more cost-effective um, so I have, I have two questions. One, what was the, uh, angle or like how wide was your view, um, from center field? I'm just kind of curious from the standpoint of, I know for us, we, we get a little bit of second base and it's a predominantly zoomed in to capture mostly of home plate. Are you getting a wider view lens of the field, uh, from your center field angle, or is it very much like, um, like you were talking about, like the TV, uh, the general TV camera angle in terms of what's in view? Yeah. So we tried to get it to be, um, pretty similar to a, a TV angle. So typically we like to have the, 
it, we have to have it offset because we can't get that much height. Right. So some mm-hmm. center field um, angles that we see are, they have the pitcher and home plate kind of all aligned. Right. So the mm-hmm. it's like dead center. And we didn't have, if we were to do that, the, the pitcher would be blocking home plate. Um, mm-hmm. but we were not able to do that. So we have it out in left center. It's a little bit offset. And, um, and we typically have, you know, the, the top of the screen around like the head of the pitcher or a little bit higher, you know, we definitely want to see ball release, but, um, that's kind of as high as it needs to get. And then we just want to make sure that we have the entire plate and both batters boxes in, in view, but really, mm-hmm. um, we want to zoom in as close as we can while still having all of the important characters of each pitch in the screen. So um, it does look a little bit like a TV angle. Um, mm-hmm. That's, that's probably good. Um, sometimes the second baseman's or, or the second base runners uh, head will get into, into the frame and block the view of the strike zone, but that's not, um, not super common. So I think that's probably what I recommend. And so I guess my second question, this is for both uh, you, Ethan and Robert, what from a scouting standpoint, especially at lower budget schools that may not have synergy um, or video of their opponents, what what do you guys recommend to be the best way to scout an opposing team just based upon their stat sheet? Because I know that's very common for a lot of coaches to do. Um, but if you guys were to just um, analyze and scout an opposing team based upon their stat sheet, what types of things would you guys look at and how would you um, make tactical um, decisions in terms of how you would approach an opposing team based upon what you're, what you would look at um, on a stat sheet? Yeah, I I can touch on this one first. Um, So a big thing that our program likes to look at and this isn't common on every stat sheet, but I think a lot of stat sheets have it these days um, are splits. So when you're talking about using tactics, um, a big, a big tactical decision that a manager has to make in a game is should we have a righty or a lefty pitcher on the mound based on the hitters that are coming up. Right. So, so splits are big on that, but in general, when scouting off a stat sheet, I think you really just want to look at metrics that you think are um, are going are predictive and representative of the players, what the player is going to do against you. So mm-hmm. um, I think that, you know, I, I think batting average kind of gets a, definitely gets a bad rap um, for, you know, reasons deserved and, and undeserved. But in college, I think that's a pretty good proxy, right? It's just like, is this guy hitting 230 or is he hitting 330 or is he hitting 430? Right. Like mm-hmm. the guy who's hitting 430 is going to be very, very uh, good and, and much better than the guy hitting 230. Right. So I think that there's just some kind of basic common sense stuff that I think coaches are already using. Um, I would, you know, recommend using instead of just looking at batting average home runs, um, you could kind of expand and start looking at on base percentage and slugging, right. To get a sense for, this guy's a, he's, he's really good at getting hits, but when he gets hits, are they singles? Are they home runs? Are they doubles? Um, and that can influence where you're going to put your defense, right? If, if you're going to have your outfield in or back, 
Um, all that stuff is, is important. And I think that those are things that you can look at on just a traditional stat sheet. And then the last thing I'll mention is um, stolen bases. I think the guys who are good at good at stealing bases and who are likely to steal against you are probably attempting steals like a lot. Right. So mm-hmm. you can look at the ratio stolen, stolen bases to caught stealing. Um, but I would probably look more at just like stolen base attempts in general, just is this guy going mm-hmm. to, try to steal against us? And, and if he has never stolen a base, then that's, that's also an important piece of tactical information that you can get from, from a stat sheet. So Robert, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah. Like, like you just mentioned, um, you know, about the frequency of singles, doubles, uh, home runs, there's a statistic called, there's a statistic called isolated power, which is essentially slugging percentage minus batting average. And that can tell you, that can be very telling in how frequently someone, you know, hits singles or hits them in the gap. And since, you know, since we really wouldn't have opponents, you know, exit velocity data, kind of those process based metrics, we can look at how frequently they hit doubles, triples, and home runs because generally speaking, those balls are hard hit balls. So we can say, well, this guy has a bunch of hard hit balls. You know, let's uh, understand that, you know, they're going to be hit there. Um, And then another thing is if you have access to play-by-play data, you know, most most websites do anyways, um, especially at the D1 level, you know, go, go through that. See if you can, again, this is where, you know, those data analysts come in where, you know, have them pull that play by play data of your opponent and see, you know, you can kind of make like a, a, a rough spray chart of it, you know, cause it, it will tell you like, Oh, he hit the ball, you know, he flied out to left. He did this and you can see how frequently someone hits the ball and where, um, but again, that's, that's also dependent on, um, SIDs and things along those lines. Mm-hmm. So I guess to transition a little bit back to, um, metrics, I was thinking about from an ecological perspective, um, or rather just from a, a skill standpoint, if I'm trying to assess a player's skill, and let's say we've, we've talked a lot about process-oriented um, metrics, the thing that I see as a potential limitation is where that data is collected. So like, let's say we're in the early um, preseason um, and we're trying to, or rather we're just in the preseason and we're trying to figure out who should um, play, et cetera, and or we were early in the season and we have a small sample size for for many of our players who, you know, aren't getting necessarily all the same playing time. Sometimes I wonder about like, OK, yeah, they have X exit velocity or um, but if it's only against BP, does that necessarily translate to when they're facing a pitcher throwing multiple different pitches, um, different speeds, etc.? So. I guess my question to you guys is just like, do some of these metrics take into account things like uh, swing and miss percentage? Because if you have a high exit uh, velocity, um, I'll, I want to know how often do you hit the ball? Because if you if you're not hitting the ball at a high enough clip, which I don't know exactly what would be the right percentage of um, contact rate um, or swing and miss that we would want to look at. Are there? Do you guys know of any metrics, or could you think of how to create a metric that would look at these things 
that we could tell something in terms of like how skilled are they um, at utilizing some of these process oriented um, skill sets? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you that there is definitely a limitation with any statistic that you are measuring um, with the potential for small sample size to um, to create, you know, the, the, the sample that you've um, collected may not necessarily be representative until you have a large enough sample size. And also it may the sample that you're collecting is not going to be representative of what you're trying to um, what you're trying to quantify if the situation itself is not representative, right? So if I'm trying to figure out who are going to be the guys who have high exit velocities in game, then um, we're not just going to directly look at the list of, okay, who has the highest exit velocity in batting practice, because we know that those two situations are not um, equivalent, right? So, well, and, and two, like, let's say he does have a high exit velocity in the game, but he's only batting like, I don't know, 200, 230, you know, and so it becomes a question of, well, we have a different player with a little bit lower exit velocity um, and and he, he hasn't yet accumulated enough ABs. But the question becomes, how do you make those decisions uh, between guys who have higher exit velocities? Like, when do we make this transition? Um, you know, when going back to the question I had posed earlier, when the, the expected number deviates from the actual number, how do we know when to make adjustments in terms of um, player selection? Yeah, so I think that, um, I, like, I see what you're saying for sure, um, that there are guys who just hit, hit the crap out of the ball um, but are going to be swinging and missing and they're striking out too much. There are ways of, um, of doing a, you know, a statistical analysis that can take kind of all of the outcomes into account, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. yes, he hits the ball hard, but he's only, but he's only hitting the ball hard or he's only putting the ball in play, say 20% of the time, the other 80% of the time he's, um, he's striking out, right? That's obviously a, a kind of a hyperbolic example, but mm -hmm. in that case, yes, his, um, you know, his, his exit velocity is going to be high and that's a process-based metric. Um, but if he's not making contact, then that's an issue. So that's where you would have to lean on, um, you know, a variety of metrics, right? So you can't ever just look at one. Um, so, you know, to, to bring it back to the case that you were talking about, where say we have one guy who just hits the ball super hard, um, 99th percentile, you know, power, but he's really not putting the ball in play that often. And then you have this other guy who's more of, you know, kind of a contact hitter, and, and he's getting on base at a, at a high clip, but it's not, um, you know, it's, it's not with high exit velocity. It's with, you know, he's just kind of putting the ball where the fielders aren't. Right. So I'm thinking of like a rise um, from the twins. Yeah. You know, right. Like he would be a good example of somebody with with probably average exit velocity. I don't know. I mean, you, we could probably pull it up, but like I'm yeah. assuming that his exit velocity isn't like like super low, but at the same point, it's not going to be in the top percentile. I agree. Yeah. And then we can contrast him with a guy like Joey Gallo, right? Mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. Like hits it to the moon when he hits it. And, and if he's not hitting it, you know, it's not usually a good outcome, right? It's, it's a swing and miss or it's a strikeout. Um, so that's, I, I think that that's where you have to then look for other metrics that are going to um, kind of 
capture something different, right? So you could just be looking at an exit velocity leaderboard. Um, but if you see something up there, you're like, oh, it says Joey Gallo is a top five player in the league or a top five hitter in the league. It's like, okay, well, we don't really, we, we know that, or we suspect that that's not the case. So let's go look at this other metric, which in, in, you know, we could use WOBA, XWOBA. Um, there's, there's other stats that are like, okay, they factor in strikeouts and walks into that. Mm-hmm. I think you, you bring up an interesting point, but, um, there are definitely metrics that are, are out there to measure like almost everything. So, you know, I would suggest probably just like switching the metric that you're looking at and try to find one that's going to put, you know, that, that's just going to measure more what you're looking at. So if you're looking at who hits the ball the hardest, you know, Joey Gallo should be ahead of Arias on a leaderboard. Right. But if you're looking for mm-hmm. who gets the best results over a longer, you know, over a half a season, a, a big mm-hmm. sample size, then Arias, you know, might be ahead of Gallo on that list. I actually am not exactly sure, but, um, but for the sake of the exercise, we'll say, yeah, Arias is a, he gets better results with lower exit velocity. Um, he would just, from a statistical standpoint, Arias would just have to be doing that for a lot longer, for a larger sample size, but mm-hmm. is going to identify him as someone who is like able to get hits without hitting the ball hard. Cause it's, it's hard to get hits without hitting the ball hard, right? When you hit the ball hard, good things happen. And when you don't, usually good things don't happen. So um, for a guy like him, it's just going to take a little bit longer for the metrics to, um, to kind of find what you're suspecting, I think. Right. And I guess where I'm going to with the, the whole exit velocity thing is I do think that sometimes we get so focused on one thing. Yes, it may be correlated with good results, but it's most things don't have a correlation of one and one being perfectly correlated. Right. So um, really what what I'm asking, too, and why I bring it up is that there there comes a certain point, And this is true in the, the SNC world. Like what, at what point is strong? is are you strong enough type of a thing because a lot of times people and coaches will just chase strength and i think the same thing can be said of like chasing exit velocity at what point is you got enough exit velocity because at the end of the day if the ball goes over the fence it doesn't matter if it was hit at like 116 or 117 and the other one was hit at say for example i don't know uh you know 90 or 88 or whatever like if the ball goes over the fence it it doesn't matter what the exit velocity was necessarily. There is a certain cutoff point, you know, and 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 this is why people like Brian Dozier, right? They they hit forty home runs, but they're all to left field, the shortest part of the of the ballpark, and he he didn't have. I don't believe he had the highest exit velocity in the league. Yeah. Um. And so, I guess that's that's kind of where I'm getting at is like. How do we how do we build a better picture and evaluating players and which players that we that we should, um, you know, like you were talking about before, like finding an advantage in terms of how to utilize our players um, on the field, so to speak? Yeah, yeah, I think it's I think that's an interesting point. Um, Obviously, the um, there there is diminishing returns with uh, power when you're hitting and also, um, with strength in the weight room, right. It's like, um, Mm -hmm. you can always get stronger. You can always, you know, swing the bat harder and and improve your skill so that you're hitting the ball harder. But, um, 
at a certain point, it just doesn't matter. Right. Cause you're, the results are going to be the same. No, you don't. I, yeah. I, I, I get your point that, you know, a 500 foot Homer is worth the same as a 380 foot Homer. Um, but on the other hand, I think that probably every player in the league would, would love to have a little bit more power if, if given the chance, mm-hmm. right? Like no one's saying, I'm, I think I'm good on the power thing. Like I think, um, I think that everyone, you know, would, would like a little bit more power, but you do have to kind of have a more complete picture of who is this player as a hitter, as a defender. Um, but especially let's just say as a hitter, um, and is adding power going to subtract from other parts of his game that are valuable. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I think that that's a kind of a different question and one I haven't really thought too much about, but it's definitely something that, um, that I think that the, there is adequate data for, um, for someone to go, you know, kind of answer that question if that's what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kind of building off of that too, Garrett is, um, you know, like Ethan mentioned earlier, the law of diminishing returns. Um, but you can also kind of be able to, you know, optimize a skill set. So, you know, someone like Brian Dozier, I mean, I, this is in the major league realm, but mm-hmm. Brian Dozier would have been a great fit at Fenway Park based mm-hmm. on, you know, how he hits the ball. Cause it's, he hits those, you know, um, kind of those, uh, 88 to 92 mile an hour exit velocity with a, you know, relatively high launch angle, but at Fenway mm-hmm. Park, that would work great because that's exactly how he fits the profile. So, um, kind of breaking it down back into a college sense, it's just helping to understand that, you know, you're not, you're not going to see kind of large exit velocity gains in a short period of time. Um, you know, you might make an adjustment um, or things along those lines, but it may uptick, you know, one, maybe two miles an hour. And I mean, that's from, you know, beginning of the fall to, you know, end of spring. So it's just, it's understanding that, you know, find what's, find what metrics are valuable to each player and understand that, okay, how can we optimize a player's current skill sets and then going forward, how can we optimize their future skill sets? And two, I guess the other question that I had um, in terms of, you know, if I'm thinking about, well, what kind of statistics can um, tell me about like how adjustable a player is? Like how well can they adjust to different pitches? Um, I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking of it from, from the standpoint of like how skilled are they at hitting um you know is there a way to measure the adjustability of a hitter um because i know that's something that you know some coaches have really turned their focus of attention to is creating more adjustable hitters and so i guess the question that i think a lot of coaches especially being data driven we want to know how to measure it and so i'm curious if you guys have any ideas on how we could measure in a tr- and track how adjustable a hitter is um, I think that that is a kind of a million dollar question. I, I, um, pro- I, the, the first thing that comes to my head is that if someone has that solution, they're probably working for a team, uh, and uh-huh. that information, you know, on, on, on lock so that other teams aren't able to, um, to exploit that because I think it's a really good question. And, um, 
probably something that a lot of teams would want to know, especially about amateur players um, before uh, before signing them, right? So uh, mm-hmm. personally, haven't thought too much about this question and I haven't really seen anything in the public about it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the data that we have in the public just isn't really adequate to answer the question, but I haven't, uh, I haven't really thought too much about it. Maybe, maybe Robert, have you talked about or thought about that at all? I mean, the first thing that popped into my head, I feel like should be taken with a grain of salt, but still, um, kind of seeing like a kind of hitters volatility report. So, um, I know Fangraphs does this. I've done this on my, uh, NAIA web app as well, kind of, um, like 15, you know, X amount of game rolling Wilbo or X amount of game rolling batting average, um, things along those lines where honestly you can, you can see, because again, assuming that they are getting a variety of pitches, but then that's where having that data, like TrackMan, um, flight scope, things along those lines, being able to see those different types of pitches and see, okay, well, maybe he is adjustable to this, um, or maybe he isn't, um, right now we can, but we can see, you know, how volatile that given hitter is. But again, grain of salt, because again, like I'm totally in agreement with what Ethan says, like it's a million dollar question. Hmm. Yeah. I was just curious too. I mean, from the standpoint of it, like if we were to just run a thought experiment, you know, like how would we go about trying to measure that? Cause I'm, you know, in my head, I'm thinking about a player like Ichiro, like their ability to hit a bunch of different pitches, like their movement has variability to it and able to solve kind of sort of various emerging problems, um, and come up with a variety of movement solutions to meet, um, the dynamic nature of the game. And that's where I'm kind of curious of like, man, how could we, what ways can we measure that? I know like in my head, I'm thinking like, okay, maybe contact rate and swing and miss rate, um, along with barrel rate. I mean, I don't know, like, cause some of that is, is not just like, if you get fooled on a pitch, the difference could simply be, um, an out, whether that's a strikeout swing and miss, um, a fly out, a ground out versus just a single, you know, cause the outcome might not always be a, a home run or a double or triple or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that to, I, if you're, if we're trying to measure, um, a player's skill of being able to adjust, I think that we have to define what they're adjusting to. Mm. So if we're just talking about a player's general ability to turn a weakness into a strength, we could probably identify each player's, you know, biggest weakness or, or something like that in, you know, the 2018 season and then look and see, okay, how, you know, what was, what were his metrics on? So I'm thinking of, um, for example, like a, uh, like Mike Trout used to not be able to hit the high pitch, right? The high fastball. So say in mm-hmm. 18, we see the data and it's like, okay, Mike Trout's swing and miss rate on a high fastball is like way above league average. Then you could just kind of try to find something for every player that, and then look at, did they improve or did they get worse? Um, in 2019, there are probably certain guys who have had the same scouting report on them, uh, for, you know, five or 10 years. And, and they've just never been able to adjust to a certain thing. I, um, growing up a Rockies fan, I kind of have this, uh, memory in, ingrained in my mind of Carlos Gonzalez swinging and missing at an outside low and outside slider. Um, 
that's just a pitch that he seemed to want to swing at, you know, every single time there were two strikes, regardless of uh, who was on the mound. Um, I'm mostly thinking of left-handed against him, a lefty. So, um, you know, in that case, he probably wouldn't have a great adjustability score, but, um, but that's kind of for like a very targeted example. So if, if we're just trying to gauge, you know, how well does player X, um, adjust to everything in general. Like, I think that that's probably a little bit, um, too tough to answer with the amount of data that we have now. I just don't think we have enough data to answer that question yet, but we might be able to kind of find targeted examples of a player improving or not improving. That's just kind of my thought on that. Well, and I think you brought up a good point in terms of like, we have to define what it is that we're looking for. Um, and I was more thinking about things in terms of like their kinematics and you're, but, and trying to, trying to infer them from the results data. Um, and, but, but again, you brought up the good point of like, it, it really comes down to how we define this because then I was starting to think about, okay, how would I measure something like dexterity, the, an athlete's ability to solve any emerging problem, um, under a variety of circumstances. And really when you start to look at it, I mean, that's kind of what war is to some, to some standpoint. And, and, um, I'm trying to think about like what other things, cause like to me, like when it comes, if we're thinking about dexterity, we're thinking about like, okay, them performing in high stress situations. Oftentimes like this, this is the case of like, you know, when people are starting to chant MVP, right? Like there, there's an expectation that those guys perform under pressure, um, when things really matter. And, and I guess I wonder, are there any stats currently that look at that? Cause I know I've seen breakdowns of where, where they look at like, okay, given X, Y, Z situation, here's how, how well this, um, athlete performs. And so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of curious from the standpoint of, should we maybe be placing more, um, emphasis on that and looking at that? Cause oftentimes we're looking at these, these big, um, general overarching numbers and could it be also just as valuable to look at um, how well an athlete does in a high pressure situation? Yeah. So there are, um, there are stats like that. Um, there are some methods out there of splitting a game into um, what's, what's called low leverage, medium leverage, or high leverage situations. And mm-hmm. a mathematical formula that's not really super relevant, but basically it says, okay, if your team's up, 10 to zero in the ninth, this at bat is very low leverage, right? There's it's low pressure. And if it's, you know, bottom of the ninth tie game runner on third, no outs, whatever, two outs, um, that's a very high leverage situation. So that distinction exists. And then once, once we, you know, understand what high medium and low leverage situations are, um, there have been attempts to look at, okay, how do players, how does every player do in each of these situations compared to their overall average. So um, I, I believe that status just called clutch. Um, I think that it's on fan graphs. I'm not quite mm. sure, but it's definitely out there. Um, and basically it's looking at, okay, how does a guy do in high leverage situations versus how does he do overall? And mm-hmm. um, from what I've 
from what I know about it, it's, it's a very descriptive stat in that it tells us, it can tell us a lot. Um, with those types of stats though, what, what an analyst wants to see is the same names at the top of the leaderboard every year, right? When that happens, mm-hmm. we, we say, okay, this is a skill instead of this is just kind of random variation. And um, all evidence that I've seen has kind of shown there not to be uh, a consistent, you know, consistency across the leaderboard every year for this clutch metric, um, mm. which kind of indicates that um, there aren't certain players who perform better in the clutch consistently than they do normally. But I think that that is that might kind of be an overarching answer to your general question. But I think that it is an interest, a very interesting um, idea to not just look at the results, right? Because this kind of the theme of this podcast so far has been results Mm -hmm. process, right? And that stat is completely results-based. It's like, does this guy have better results in the bottom of the ninth with two outs and the tying run on than he does normally? That that question, we've kind of, I think that the analytics, analytics community has kind of answered and said, no, that's not really a skill that guys have. Um, But if we kind of flip that on its head and think about the process oriented metrics, which I think some of the most important process oriented metrics that are becoming available now are biomechanics data, right? So that's motion capture data where um, an analyst could potentially look at how every player's joints are moving, right? Am I right, Garrett? That's kind of where this biomechanics data, like that's what that is. I mean, there's, there's some of that, but I guess what I'm getting at and maybe where I was going to ask the question next was if it's not, if it doesn't show up long-term and there's not a lot of long-term consistency, mm-hmm. is there enough consistency within a season? Like say for example, like hot and cold streaks um, that maybe because again, this athletic performance is a very complex um event that's going on there's a lot of things that are that are happening there um your mental state plays a huge impact on your ability to perform and and so you know too when guys are have a really good season especially say for example in something as high leverage as as um what we're looking at here i guess the question that i have is like one can we um improve that metric if we changed up our training but really what it comes down to what's more practical and immediate is could we use that data if it's only if it i wonder does it at least stabilize over a season you know because it seems like you were saying like over multiple seasons it doesn't seem to have any stability yeah um there's there's a lot of variation there but if it stabilizes throughout a season after a certain point then I wonder if you could then use that in your decision making and have it have some sort of strategic value for that year. Um, so I guess that's that's at least my one. I don't know. I want. I don't want to say it's a a counterpoint, but maybe a a, a pivot thought. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think that that's definitely something to look into. I personally am not aware of um, of whether that clutch stat is able or or stabilizes um, quickly or at all. I 
I'm not sure, but what I, I think would be um, very interesting to look at is when, when um, teams are getting increasing access to this biomechanics data of how a player's body is moving. And I wonder if that data is potentially like, you know, how a player's mechanics in high leverage versus their mechanics in mid leverage versus their mechanics in low leverage. Who are the guys who have the same mechanics all the time? Who are the guys who maybe in the, the um, less important at bats are, are, uh, have sloppier mechanics, for example? Um, or who are the guys that have worse mechanics in high leverage situations uh, for whatever reason? So um, I think that those are stats that we don't even have access to yet. Like the public hmm. is, does not have that at all. Um, but I think that kind of evaluating this question from a, a process-oriented um, approach might kind of give us better answers than a results-based approach can just because there's so many factors with, um, with evaluating how a guy does in high leverage if we're just looking at like his batting average, right? Like that's, there's just so many factors and, and the sample size is obviously going to be smaller for high leverage than for, um, for an entire season because there aren't that many high leverage situations compared to total at bats. So yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question. I would love to answer it um, using biomechanics data so that it can be kind of more of a process-based right. approach um, rather than how it's done now. I think one of the challenges, uh, sorry, Robert, yeah, no, do you want to, I want to at least uh, touch on the, the biomechanics component. It's uh, especially be, from like thinking about it from what we understand from an ecological, uh, dynamics approach is that you, what, what becomes hard, um, to do is to separate the mechanics from the result. If that makes sense, because you could have perfect mechanics and throw a ball say if we're looking at a pitcher um, and miss, so to speak, or be very consistent. Um, and so really what you're looking for and what we talk a lot about is functional variability. So does the system biomechanically um, in, does it vary? Does it have good variability? And so like when I was talking about being like a, an adaptability metric, I was thinking about it in terms of the fact that does, does their movements have good variability. So you would see uh, a certain variation um, within that variation of biomechanical data. You would see that um, a certain range creates a, um, a successful result. And so it more becomes about like when we're looking at the mechanical data, what is that range of biomechanical variation. Um, essentially what we talk about is like, um, rep without rep, which comes from Nikolai Bernstein, who was looking at blacksmiths, um, and, you know, had the same question that you kind of, um, posed and was looking to see, does a blacksmith, a really high level blacksmith who hits the same spot on the anvil every single time, are his biomechanics, really consistent. And what he found was that they actually tended to vary every single time rep to rep. And this is something that driveline has talked about to and acknowledged. Um, although they initially, um, drew a, the opposite conclusion was, well, there's really low variability. Therefore there is no variability if that makes sense. And it's like, actually that variability, even though it's, it's, it's small, 
is still very important. Yeah. Because we don't want to reduce that variability to zero because the game is dynamic and there are, there are a lot of things that may um, the athlete may have to adjust for. So let's take, for example, the pitcher. Well, over the course of the game, the mound erodes, um, and that will cause them to have to alter the mechanics. But the question becomes, can they still actually hit the target? Additionally, you know, muscles may fatigue, et cetera. Do, does their system have enough good functional variability to make adjustments for that? And so it becomes very difficult to separate the process from the actual result, um, so to speak, because those two things are intrinsically linked to some extent. And so that's that's at least um, where I find it interesting, because at the end of the day, when we're thinking about um, what gets me really interested and, and why I wanted to one do this podcast and talk to people like yourself is that from a dynamic systems point of view of um, ecological dynamics, which is just the combination of ecological psychology and dynamic systems theory, dynamic systems theory has its um, foundations or its roots in mathematics. And so basically, can we apply um, statistical modeling that looks at dynamic systems? Um, there, I believe there's another theory out there called uh, chaos theory, which is really, I feel like, inappropriately named. But essentially, we're finding order in things like weather patterns, things that seem very chaotic, but yet you can actually mathematically model them. Um, and so I would, what I'm very interested to see is people like yourselves um, apply these models or like um, these concepts and ideas of looking at uh, a very dynamic sport like baseball and how can we actually analyze them and take into account the dynamic and complex nature of the sport without becoming um, too reductionistic? Can we be systematic in understanding how the relationship between these various component parts um, and how they essentially, if we're talking about emergence, how things emerge from the interactions of all these uh, different variables. That's, that's a great point. I, I uh, thank you for enlightening me on a lot of that stuff. Cause I have not um, been exposed to a lot of those uh, concepts, but the idea um, of, of functional variability, it makes total sense. It's something that I would have never uh, thought, you know, thought of myself and, and thought that's probably how this works because you know, as someone who's not an expert in this, I just kind of assumed that a baseball player, you know, you hear about repeating, mechanics, mm -hmm. right? Repeatable mechanics. And so I kind of just assume, all right, if you have the same mechanics every time, more or less, um, then that's good. And if you have wildly different mechanics every time, then that's probably bad. But, um, but it's interesting to, to hear that that's not exactly how it works. And it's, it's a more, um, complicated situation. So all well, it sounds like we have a lot to learn from from that. But here's something interesting, and I think you you understand this and can appreciate this. Working with statistics, you you deal with variability all the time. Yeah. Right. Like, and and that's the thing that I think people don't realize when we're talking about statistics. Like, we yes, we have correlation, 
Um, yes, we have statistical significance and all these other sort of things, but within that, we have standard deviation um, of any sort of sample size. And that's for us to understand that there is actually variation in the things that we're looking at. And so I guess that's that's where at least me taking statistics and looking at all this sort of stuff, like oftentimes when we were looking at a mean value, like that's the that's a culmination of of a bunch of various variables. And that mean may not actually be an actual data point of the actual real data. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's a great point. I think that, you know, people don't everyone understands what an average is, but what, what a mean is of data. Um there's, there's always a much bigger picture. That's why, um, that's why a lot of the times, like with projection systems now, like, um, Pakoda and, uh, mm -hmm. other projection systems, they don't just report what's the average, you know, what's our average prediction here for this player next season. They report a bunch of them. That's like, this is the 10th percentile. This is the 20th percentile. And I, th mm. I think that's very uh, important. And, and I totally agree with what you're saying. Statistics is, is a lot I don't know if I'd say more, but it's it's probably equally about um, quantifying variation and uncertainty um, in addition to measuring, you know, creating point estimates. A point estimate is like one number that, you know, we say is representative of all the data. So that's like the mean, the median. Um, and, and point estimates are easy to understand. But when it gets to when you want a full picture of the data, um, variability is so important. So yeah, that's that's a great point. It's it's very important and a, and a great tool that statisticians can um, use their understanding of to help kind of understand other things like um, biomechanics, like you were talking about. And and to like one of the things that you brought up before, and having taken a stats class, like it didn't really stay. Well, and also having. Um, had to read a lot of research papers and understanding that there are different types of research. Mm -hmm. um, descriptive statistics, like in in some ways, they're there to describe what happens in the same way that is a descriptive study is simply trying to observe what happened versus trying to test a, a hypothesis, yeah. so to speak. And and I think there's value sometimes in just trying to observe to understand what what actually just happened. Um, and and I think that's I don't know if that if I if that's a, a really good analogy, but that is that is that accurate to say that descriptive statistics are more trying to just relay to you what happened versus um, something like correlation. Um, I'm trying to remember R squared, which is the the variance, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. R squared is just correlation squared, and and helps uh, measure the. Uh, kind of interconnectedness of, of two variables. But yeah, yeah, I mean, um, descriptive statistics are definitely um, important and, and play a role in understanding what just happened, right? I mean, we can't really look forward until we understand um, what happened in the past. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what, like the clutch metric we were talking about earlier. Um, mm -hmm. that's, a that's kind of a descriptive statistic. It's telling us how in clutch situations, how well did this guy perform? Um, and, and then there's kind of a separate group of statistics that are more predictive. So those are, that's kind of where like predictive modeling comes in. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, there definitely are different types of things and, and different types of, um, analyses that 
can be used to answer different types of questions. So it's, it's uh, kind of a Swiss army knife a little bit in that, in that way. So there's one, one other question that I had um, or that, that came to mind uh, earlier in our conversation and um, it's, so you're at Cal Poly and um, there's a, I can't remember what year it was, but there's a uh, kind of relatively famous, um, probably not well-known study, but there's the Cal Poly uh, batting uh, study. Um, I don't know. Are you familiar with that by chance? So I actually just learned about this recently. Um, I, I'm okay. not, um, super, uh, super familiar with it, but yeah, Cal Poly has a, um, a biomechanics lab that uh, I think was, is not typically used for baseball, but um, it sounds like there was one, um, baseball study. It, was it recent um, when it came out? No, um, I believe, man, I, I, in my head, I'm thinking the nineties. Okay. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, but I have to, uh, pull that up real quick. But anyways, my question was, is that, you know, it's, I don't know how long the coaching staff has been there, but it seems as, I guess my question is, is have you gotten to do any research, you know, it being the place where, a very influential study came out, um, at least for me personally, that other books like um, Make It Stick have used in terms of like talking about learning. And it, for those who are not familiar with the Cal Poly study, it, it is where they um, analyzed uh, hitting, basically like doing mass practice versus um, more random practice. And so they had a control group that just did their no normal uh batting practice. And then, um, there was a group that got an additional, um, block practice where they did 15 fastballs. They got 15 fastballs, 15 changeups and 15 curveballs. And then there was a, uh, third group that got, um, basically instead of having it be, um, they still got 15 of each pitch, but they randomized the order in which they got, got those pitches. And the findings of that study was that players that got more of a random um, allocation of pitches did had better in-game performance than those that had simply done the block practice um, that also did better than the group that uh, did no additional practice. And so um, that in short is the uh, Cal Poly study. Um, but I guess back to, to, to my question, uh, Ethan, you know, have you guys gotten to do any cool research um, types of projects? Um, is there potential possibility for you to do uh, research? Is there any types of things that you would like to do research um, on? Yeah, so um, I'm, I pulled up an article and it looks like this study may have been done in 2014, um, which uh, for those unfamiliar, yeah, could be the 2014 Cal Poly baseball team uh, was the, the best Cal Poly baseball team in, in recent memory. They um, ended up hosting a regional uh, for, I believe the first time in school history. So that was a very good team. Um, the, the most of the coaching staff that is currently at Cal Poly was still um, there in 2014. And I will have to ask them about this because I don't know um, anything about their involvement. It, clearly they okayed this. Um, to happen with their, uh, with their team, but I, I don't know that much about it. So 
Um, have we been able to do any research like this? No. Um, it's not something that is kind of in my personal um, wheelhouse. And so I think that's kind of why it hasn't happened just because I've kind of been the one driving things. Um, if we had, you know, a manager this year or, or in future years who was really interested in this, um, this definitely is within the realm of possibility for us to um, pull off some, you know, experiment type thing like this. Um, I am very interested in, in, you know, using the, the spot with the team to do an experiment of some sort. Cause you know, usually as a public analyst of baseball data, we can't, uh, run experiments, right? We can only run observational studies where we're not, we're just taking the data in and analyzing it. We're not controlling for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, um, the idea of actually doing an experiment is, um, something that I have thought about. Um, there's, there's plenty of different things we could do. And, and, um, I think that getting any like biomechanics data would be very hard uh, for us to do, at least with the resources that I know of. So um, most of the projects that I do and that I'm kind of interested in doing going forward are just um, more having to do with like machine learning and, and predictive modeling, because um, that's just kind of the the type of thing that interests me personally. But um, but yeah, that's it. this is super cool. I need to, to read up on it for sure. Um, but the, the findings that you described totally make sense that um, that randomizing the order that you get uh, pitches in batting practice is going to help you in game. I mean, that definitely makes sense, but I'm glad that there's a, um, a study to back that up. Yeah, it, and so I, I just pulled up that study. It, it was from 1994, um, and this could have been oh, call California Polytechnic State University. So, um, I don't know. Like that's where I'm like, is was this a junior college or yeah, so there's the, another there there's another Cal Poly that's um Cal Poly Pomona. I think that mm-hmm. I mean, I actually don't know. Um it, it, Cal Poly Pomona is a, a D two school, so I don't know if that influences anything. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever I'm looking at, um maybe wrong. But I so yeah, the the Well, I mean, even if there's a more recent study, I'm I'm totally interested in that as well. Um because yeah, it looks like the the stats oh here we go um the stats only go back to 1995 for Cal Poly but I'm looking at like conference membership history and from 1948 to 1994 they're in the CCAA so that could be why there's it could predate their their shift um into the current conference that they're in okay. And that's why I'm like not because I'm like, oh, I'd be curious to go see what the stats were. But I I'm not seeing any stats uh, before uh, 1995. But anyways, um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of ask about that because, I mean, that's one of the uh, the studies that I recommend a lot of people read um, and also just. Because, I mean, if it happens to be the same school, um, I think that's super cool that, you know, you guys have been a part of some uh, really cool research. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, Ethan, do you have any um, resources that you would recommend to people, um, baseball related and or just non-baseball related? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I personally use baseballsavant.com uh, a, a lot. I, I 
they have a cool feature called the Statcast Search, where you can just put in um, and basically anything you want, um, like you know what player or what count or what uh, date range or something, and um, and it'll give you all of the the video for every pitch that meets that criteria. So um, I love looking at that video. Um, and if you have a specific research question that you're trying to look at, um, that that source is is invaluable. Um, and then I think you know one other big thing I get asked a lot about is is um, learning you know statistical programming and and learning R. R is the software that I um, do most of my work in, and um, and for that I would really just recommend um, there's there's a ton of free resources just googling like um, you know R tutorials or or whatever. Um, but especially I, I started learning R on datacamp.com, uh, datacamp. And, uh, I think that they have a, uh, a very good product out there and it, it makes it easy and accessible for everyone to, to learn to code, which I think if, you know, if you're interested in learning to co- code, um, there's, there's lots of resources out there and, and that's kind of how you can get your start on doing uh, similar stuff. So, uh, those are my two big resources, but also, you know, fan graphs and, and baseball prospectus and go support their work. Uh, they, they definitely need it right now. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, just, just support your, uh, your, your local businesses and your websites that you enjoy. Awesome. So if people want to connect with you, Ethan, um, how can they do so? I also want to, just in case you don't plug it, um, you got a YouTube channel that, uh, where you break down videos of, of at bats or different game situations, um, through an analytical lens. And so I recommend, highly recommend people go check that stuff out. But in addition to that, Ethan, how else can people connect with you? Yes. So my, my big thing is Twitter. Um, so you can follow me at more underscore stats. So that's M O O R E underscore S T A T S. And, um, I am doing uh, kind of a series on YouTube right now where I, um, where I kind of analyze a game looking at uh, the pitch sequencing and, and strategy. And um, I'll be, I you know always tweet the links uh, to those videos um, from Twitter. So yeah, please uh, feel free. My DMS are open to, um, to follow or um, reach out and, and ask me about anything and everything baseball or stats. Ethan, thank you so much for coming on and, taking the time to have a prolonged conversation with us. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Of course. Ethan. This really was awesome. Thank it. you guys very much for having me.